It's the Nachum Siegel Network, and uh, this is the OU Jewish Reaction Show, which uh, uh, comes to each and every week here at NachumSiegel.com. And, of course, on the NSN app, we welcome those who are tuned in around the world on the NSN app, The probably the easiest, most convenient, and certainly the most advanced way to listen to this great network. And um, uh, I want to remind everybody who uh, would love to check out all the different things that the OU is doing, and, boy, they are doing a variety of things, that's for sure, in so many departments, not just Kostras, but so many different things. Uh, you can go to the OU.org website, that's OU.org, and uh, check out some of the latest and greatest, including their events that they are holding, which you'd want to become part of. Uh, Hart Levine is our guest this week. Hart Levine is Director of Young Professionals Initiative at the OU, and he is involved in a very interesting story involving what they call the base community in Washington Heights, New York. Uh, Washington Heights at the very top of Manhattan, for those of you who are not familiar with the geography, if you're tuned in from around the world. And uh, he and his, uh, I guess, staff and group, we'll find out in a minute, has had a role in reviving a 99-year-old congregation that until very recently never had a minion even on the high holidays. Hart Levine, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. It's really it's really great to be here. Thanks I, for having me. I appreciate that. I'm sure some people are shocked to learn that there is a director of Young Professionals Initiative. How how would you describe in a sentence or two what a Young Professionals Initiative is? Right. It's, um, it, it actually is somewhat new. Um, there have been different iterations in the past, but um, basically around a, a year or two ago, they started realizing that they do a lot of programs for for young children with synagogues, and they do a lot with high school students through NCSY. And college campus, they have a lot of programs, JLIC and a whole range of programs, NCSY alumni. And then when people you know, marry and settle down and join synagogues, they can go sort of like feed back into the OU synagogue service world. Right. But they, they realize there's this gap between when people graduate college, 22, 23, and when they settle down. And it, the, the studies show that people are settling down and, and, and getting married and moving to the suburbs a little bit later. So there's this gap between 22 and 30, 35, who knows what, where people are single, maybe married, trying to, trying to find their place, trying to sort of solidify where they are, both, both uh, I think, in terms of their career and personally and, and definitely Jewishly. Right. And you said we want to sort of really focus on that demographic. So it's really, I guess, between the campus years and what one, what one might refer to as, I don't know, a young family years, right? Somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. the gap that's being uh, that's being addressed. Um, so how did had are you from Washington Heights or very familiar with Washington Heights or ne- um, or never knew about Washington Heights in advance of this? Tell us how you started with that part of Manhattan. Great. So I'm actually from uh, downtown, like near um, Union Square in Manhattan. So I grew up in the city my whole life. Um, and after I graduated college, I was in Philadelphia, and I moved back to New York. Uh, my family was there, and I started working at the OU's offices, which is also in Manhattan. And so my friends said, hey, we have an apartment up in Washington Heights. Do you want to come live with us? And I said, sure. I also, at the same point, started, started uh, studying for Smith at YU, which was in the neighborhood. So I figured it was a good place to live. It was relatively cheap housing. Some of my friends were there. Um, and I've been there for the past five years, so it's 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 now become like a real big part of my life. But up until five years ago, I maybe knew that it was there because because uh, University was there, but I didn't right. really think much of what the neighborhood or the community was like. And the story that we're about to talk about, which of course involves this congregation and uh, and, and the incredible growth that you've seen in a very short period of time. I mean, all, all this I would assume is only possible because of the broader. 
um, a way that Washington Heights has expanded over the last few years. I mean, this, this is no coincidence that you're able to revive a synagogue during this era when the population, the Jewish population of Washington Heights, continues to grow the way it is. Correct, exactly. Um, I didn't know this going in, but um, I moved in probably 2010, and around 2012, a, um, a study came out by the UJA, which actually found that the fastest-growing uh, neighborhood in all of New York was Washington Heights. In general, and, the fastest growing. Yeah. It, um, in the previous 10 years, the Jewish population in the Heights had grown around 150%. Wow. Um, from around eight nine thousand to around twenty two thousand, um, <laughs> so I didn't know it, but I sort of like like stumbled into a gold mine in terms of sort of this revival of the Jewish population. Yeah, the reason I'm chuckling is because you know I remember the seventies and eighties when, <laughs> when when everything was the exact opposite when you were watching Washington <laughs> Heights dwindle at a rapid pace, and at some point I guess uh, in, in the Giuliani administration, at some point in the mid to late nineties, all of a sudden you started hearing about some type of revival or a movement uh, you know upward and northward and then of course near to subway close to work and all these other things and now there are a million reasons why people would want to live there yeah exactly and probably a million reasons why people wouldn't uh, uh one of the reasons is because it's just um cheap housing and it's in new york city and it doesn't cost a million dollars right to live in washington heights yeah um and yeah i mean it's, it's sort of like a really interesting the way the cycles that neighborhoods go through and it happens to be washington heights going through sort of a really really uh popular upswing yeah, I'm going to ask you about other neighborhoods, especially those close to Washington Heights, a little later on. But first, let's get to this story. So uh, you discover a 99-year-old congregation. You're, you're calling it, or at least in the advanced publicity, you're calling it the oldest one in Washington Heights. Do we know that for a fact? Is it like the first Orthodox shul in the area? It, it's hard to know. There wasn't such good uh, um, documents back in the 19, early like 1900s. Um, but that's what they say, that they say that, it's also they they first started meeting as a congregation in 1916, and they wow. bought this building in 1925. Where, so like, where where is the building? Sure. So it's on 175th Street, 175 between Wadsworth and Saint Nicholas. And that, to those of us who know Washington Heights, would be considered pretty south compared to where the bulk of the Jewish community is. Correct. So back in its heyday in the 19 I don't know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that was the center of, of, of the Jewish community. Wow. But like you're saying, sometime in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the neighborhood started shifting and migrating, and now it's sort of like outside of the the traditional neighborhood that people associate with the Heights. So, so, if, it's, so it's not that far. Right, it's not that far, but there's still there's there, there are clear borders and demarcations at times. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, actually, one of the clear borders is the Arab, which actually is a, a border, and the Arab goes southwards until 179th. So oh. even sort of like, like literally, it's outside of the borders of the Jewish community. So it's not in the Eruv. It's sure. not It's not in the quote-unquote traditional area, something that you confirmed even now in 2015, and yet you're able to attract so many people to come out there? Right. So what happened was, I guess the story starts a little bit before the synagogue. Well, not before the synagogue, but before we found out about the synagogue. Um, probably around three years ago, I was living in the Heights, and some friends of mine also living in the Heights, and we were people who were really involved in Jewish leadership and Jewish activism and Jewish outreach in college. And we, and we sort of like said, like, you know, why should we put all that on the side once we graduate college? What if we can create a community that's exciting and vibrant and doing outreach and doing innovative stuff uh, for us young professionals in, in the Heights? And we started doing things um, in our apartment, uh, a learning thing in someone's living room. We did like a, a, like a meal on someone's rooftop and a shalashidus. Um, and we started reaching out to people in the neighborhood, people who we knew, people who we didn't know, people who were new to the neighborhood. And we started gathering some, some momentum, some people. Um, and at a certain point, it became too large for any one person's apartment or any rooftop. Um, 
And at that point, actually, um, the the synagogue that, that we were that most of us were going to was Mount Sinai, which is a, sort of like the sort of the stronghold of the modern Orthodox community in the Heights. Right. Um, and the rabbi of that shul, um, he knew that I was interested in doing sort of outreach and reaching out to people who were looking for a place. Um, and he told me about this congregation on 175th Street. He wanted to see the community expand and to revive that shul. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, I think there's a sense of, like, uh, a lot of the shul. It's actually really uh, beautiful that there's not the same sense of competition. There's a real sense of the shuls sort of looking out for each other. And I, and I know of a bunch of other shuls where one of the shuls supports the other shuls, either financially or, or sends people there to make minion. So there's a real sense of sort of, like, we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, and also, I think there was a recognition that like, there was a whole population that wasn't being serviced um, through the existing shuls, and we yeah. wanted to try and service them speaking with uh, Hart Levine I mean the reason that I <laughs> the reason I hesitated when you said it is because I'm a, I, I assumed that any growth in a congregation like the one you're describing is going to affect the attendance at a place like Mount Sinai has it yeah so Mount Sinai is I mean Mount Sinai has gone through a tremendous growth uh, probably 10 15 years ago it was also sort of struggling uh, sort of people who've been there for a few decades and they weren't sure what was gonna happen and then as young people started moving in, young modern Orthodox people, recent YU graduates, other uh, college communities moved to the Heights, and they, they, they ended up at Mount Sinai and sort of like, they went through a huge revival where now on an average Shabbat, they probably get 400, 500 people. Right. Um, so that's, that's like a, definitely like a, like a very, like a very strong community. It's also like a very sort of like similarly demographic, mostly modern Orthodox. 20s, 30s, plus some people 40s, 50s, 60s, up until their 90s and 100. Yeah, but you, you basically answered my question. They have not suffered. In other words, oh, they they they've done really well, yeah. and uh, they've expanded and they built a whole gym and they they've really the community has gone through some real some real exciting growth there. Cooperating with another shul was not to their detriment, which is important. Right, and I think that's 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 not often the case. Um, I think it was that's a very profound moment where someone's able to say, "Hey, listen, we'd like to see other." Shuls grow, and we'd love to. And then, uh, when our Schwartz spoke to me, he's you know obviously if we start doing things somewhere else, maybe some people were coming. Our Schwartz was was actually very considerate and very they're open about that. He said, "Listen, there's, there's there's a ton of people in the Heights, and if if there's 400 people and and five of them leave, it's not like Mount Sinai is going to collapse." Right, that's true. Still, you know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how it usually is, which is I think it was it was really surprising. Right. Um, yeah. Why why was it difficult for them to get a minion on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in those years? I would think I mean I I know something I know something about dwindling Jewish neighborhoods and it seems that any congregation that you know tries to stay active or open at least can gather together a minion for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I know you you would think so. Um they I mean I think they had been for for a while. They'd been they they sort of been struggling or, uh sort of outside the quote unquote boundaries of the Jewish community for it was it was like a period of 10 20 years where they were sort of uh, trying to stay afloat, um, and towards the end, they, like, I mean, I think what happened was a lot of the people who were going there were on the elder side. Right. Um, some of them passed away or moved out, um, and yeah, they they just weren't. So, like, when we came to them, we 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 spoke to them first, I think, July or August, um, and so the first thing that we sort of the first big thing we came up to was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Once, um, so, so this whole thing just began this past summer. No, not just past summer. Uh, the summer before. Summer before that. So over, a little um, summer over of 2014. A little over a year, and they had a minion rush on Kipper and a lot more. Well, last meaning, um, um, summer of 2014, we we approached them. Right. Um, the the rush on Kipper of 2013, supposedly they didn't get a minion. Right. 
and um, 2014? So 2014 was when we came in. So we, so we, we had all these people we'd started reaching out to, and we, we decided we were going to make Russia and Yom Kippur a thing at, at this shul. Um, and so some of the people, some of the old timers, they're like, "Oh, we're going to get a minion." I'm like, "Don't worry, we're going to get a minion." Um, <laughs> and we, I mean, it wasn't just going to happen because right, no one knew about it. It was outside of the boundaries. And we did a lot of a lot of outreach, um, we, flyers and Facebook and emails and personal invitations. People told people from work. And what we were trying to do was trying to find people who weren't, uh, who didn't already have plans for Ashana, people who either weren't involved in any synagogue or weren't really involved or didn't really feel comfortable, uh, or people who were looking for something new, yeah. something a little bit different. I mean, again, the shocking thing to me is that it is where it is, and outside the Arab and all that, and a crowd is willing to come, you know, each and every week. Uh, excuse me for jumping ahead, but I'm just curious: is this is this really an exception because of the incredible growth that there's been, and because so many people are searching? I don't mean that in a heavy religious sense. I mean that just in a, as you said earlier, in a social religious sense, are searching for a place, and this happened to be the beneficiary. Or, or or are there lessons from your experience that really can be duplicated, or at least you know admired from other communities around the country, and and some of these things implemented to help grow their community and their shul? Yeah. Uh, I think 100%. Um, I don't think I have any secret, uh, secret, uh, you know, Formal. powers to get people to come. And and I don't think the Washington Heights is so unique. Uh, obviously, every community is different, and the growth that's going on is different. But we've learned a lot about sort of how to think about a community, um, how to do community organizing, how to find people who are not being found. And and, and I think what we found is that there's a, there is a real need. There's a lot of people who are maybe even Orthodox, maybe even practicing Orthodox, but sort of like don't really find that they have a home, that they have a community where they feel that, that they belong. Yeah, the problem might be they don't have someone like yourself or others like you, your colleagues, to help organize them and get them together. Right, uh, but it, it doesn't take uh, it, it takes some hard work and it takes some uh, some help from um, from above right. and from institutions, but um, um, I don't think this is beyond people's um, capabilities to do. Well, again, jumping ahead, and again, I'm not trying to suggest that you have a secret formula, but has anybody from around the country contacted you and said, look, you know, we're sitting with 10 people here every Shabbos and 25 on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You know, is, it, is there something that can be done in our town, uh, you know, w- which also at one point was dwindling and maybe has stabled off, uh, you know, has, has uh, you know, has sort of uh, uh, evened out already over these years. Is there anything we could do to help grow a minion? Yeah, so I've actually gotten a lot of interest. Um Including people in in California and Chicago um, and Boston and even the Upper West Side, people have reached out to me and they said we want to do something like this in our community. And it's not usually meaning. Uh, I think we happen to get lucky in terms of the space that we got. Right. But a lot of things we do. The space, I think, definitely uh, sort of made the story really powerful and I think made a lot of what we did possible. Um, I think a lot of what we did could happen even without having um, um, happening across. A 99-year-old synagogue that you get to use, um, and so we've tried to share some of the messages that we've we've been doing with with um, other communities around the country. By the way, what's the space like? Is it one of these really large old sanctuaries, or it's not a shul like that? Yeah, no, it is. It's wild. It's <laughs> it's um it's, it's it's a really beautiful, it's stained glass building, like from 1925. It's like there's a balcony. Uh, what's also kind of fascinating is that um, one of the one of the gentlemen who's really been single-handedly running this place for the past 30 years. Um, he loves keeping everything around. So <laughs> there's, there's, there's 
I don't know, stuff from the, from like every decade going back to like the 60s. There's like a fridge from the 60s and a fridge from the 70s <laughs> and a fridge from the 80s. And, fr- and so, the, so you go there and you feel like you're going, you're being transported back in time, um, which, is, which is pretty amazing. For someone your age, like going to a museum, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Speaking with Hart Levine, he is officially director of the Young Professionals Initiative at the OU. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program. This is an Alchem Single Network. Don't forget to follow us. On Facebook, uh, like our network page, uh, Nahum Siegel Network, on uh, Twitter, at Nahum Siegel Net, Instagram, Nahum Siegel Network. The, um, uh, I assume that the social atmosphere is obviously a very important component, aside from the weekly kiddish, which I would guess you have no choice but to have. <laughs> that seems to be a requirement these days. Are there, right. other, are there other events you try to put together that, geared, that are geared specifically to people in their 20s? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely Kiddish is part of it. But the thing, like the, the show I want to answer, um, um, they had a Kiddish with the Pots Holland every week for, I don't know, the past maybe 99 years. And that still um, didn't help, huh? But, but people, some people came, but right. it, it wasn't enough. So, you know, so we came in and we said, great, we can bring in better food and, and really good herring and tacos <laughs> once in a while. But, and maybe they'll get people to come once or twice, but like, I don't know. We, we we realize we need something a little bit more than, than just than just good food to get people to come. It, 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 that was definitely part of it. Um, so we tried a bunch of things. One of the things we did is we tried to do some learning, um, but we tried to do learning in a way that would really appeal and attract people. Um, so one of the things we actually sort of started experimenting with was something we called potluck learning. <laughs> um, or, 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 or so usually the way that sort of like a, a shear or a Torah class goes is if one person prepares and, and gives over lesson and everyone's sitting there nodding their heads or nodding off or reading along. Um, and we said, similar to the way that a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s, when they make a meal, it's not like one person makes everything. Right. They invite people and it's potluck. Right. Uh, one person's the host and everyone, someone brings a side dish, someone brings a dessert, someone brings challah. So we said, what if we do learning the same way? What if we do learning where one person is the host and when he sets the theme or sort of gives a prompt or a question, and then everyone is tasked with bringing a source that relates or responds to that in some way. Um, and we said the sources could be, uh, let's say, a piece of Talmud or a story in Tanakh or a piece of writing from, from, from the Rav or a, a poem or an art piece um, that sort of speaks to that, that theme or that question. Um, and so we've, ended up, we've, we've been doing this pretty much monthly, um, even since we, before we got to Shul when we were doing things in our apartments. And we found that this potluck learning model is actually really, like a really powerful way to, to really include people in learning. Um, and that's something we try to, to do, to be a really um, inclusive community, which means people who are coming to really, not just to let them be, like all Jews in the pews, just sitting there listening or not listening. Uh, we wanted to really involve them. Well, uh, the, the inclusiveness includes those who you call used to be religious and those who are totally not religious. They're totally not, they're totally not religious, we understand. People might be searching and you're reaching out and uh, you know, attracting them to come in. Uh, the group of people who used to be religious must be a fascinating group. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and I didn't know about all this when I when we started doing this. Um, we thought we were trying to attract Orthodox people, Orthodox people who were sort of looking for a community. And, and, and I definitely knew about non-religious people. Um, I worked a lot, in, and I still do work a lot in, in Jewish outreach on college campuses. Um, and it turns out that the Heights has a. a well, actually, I'll I'll pose a question to the to, to your audience: um, What percent of Jews in Washington Heights? Do you think are orthodox? Hmm. Um, like, I'll give you a second to think about it. 
I'm gonna go. Hey, so, I'm gonna go. Yeah. I'm gonna go really close to the middle of the road. I'll say twenty five percent. Wow, that's that's really impressive. Really? Uh, I mean, you obviously know your stuff, but um, uh, the answer is twenty one percent. Wow. Um, what's fascinating is, is I asked this question to a lot of people. Um, I probably asked it to maybe a hundred, two hundred people. Um, and 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 usually people guess sixty five to ninety five percent. Wow. Um, once someone guessed a hundred percent. Um, <laughs> and so the answer is twenty one percent, which actually is, is standard for for. For America, that's I, actually pretty. That's actually pretty high. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think it's pretty high, right? Yeah, it's like ten percent. So, but what's what's fascinating to me was the gap between perception and reality. That there's a community of of, of, of really vibrant community of modern Orthodox people, um, and, it, and it's big, five hundred people, which is a lot, maybe more than that. Um, but like, we're only a small piece of this like really larger pie. And part of what we tried to do was open up people's people's minds, people's horizons, people's community to. Everyone else, and yeah, that includes um, I think 50% of people, uh, um, 49% of people, according to this third study, were unaffiliated, just Jewish, not connected. Right. Um, and I think that was a really important piece of it. But also, we found there are a lot of people who even consider themselves Orthodox or used to consider themselves Orthodox, but didn't really fit into any one box. And there are a bunch of people who, I guess we would we might call um, off the air. And that's interesting that a lot of them have sort of like tried to reclaim that that phrase as a source of pride. They call themselves like OTD, right. um, and a whole bunch of people like that start who were living in the Heights because I don't know it was, it was cheap housing. It was close to the subways. Who knows what? Um, yeah. Like we met some people who grew up in Lakewood and were now wandering the streets of the Heights. Uh, it was like pretty wild. Um, that's and people, that's you know, true, huh? It's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not thousands, but there. I mean, we probably attracted a few dozen people like that. Um, and we found it was really interesting that we were doing things that were attracting both modern Orthodox people who, had, who were quote-unquote regular modern Orthodox and people who grew up in Lakewood and were searching and people who, uh, for whom this was the first time walking into shul in their whole life. Unbelievable. Har Levine is with us, Director of Young Professionals Initiative at the OU. What's the OU Next Gen Department? So OU Next Gen is the department that thinks about what's happening after high school. Um, NCSY is sort of like the sort of the flat, one of the flagship OU programs. Right. Um, so the question is, what happens next? What happens after that? Which which which, which includes? I mean, until now it's been mostly college. Uh, there's there's um, JLIC. OU JLIC is a program where the OU sends rabbinic couples to college campuses to to support uh, Orthodox students and Orthodox communities. And and there's NCSY alumni, which works in this. The seals falling off with alumni, and 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 the OU also runs birthright trips through Israel Free Spirit, and there's a program that I run called Heart to Heart, which is grassroots student outreach on college campuses. <laughs> um, and then now it includes also this this I guess this is OU Next Next. What happens after college? Right. Um, and so this program, and so we the way that we view uh, um, from the very beginning, myself and my friends and the OU um, has viewed the height as as a pilot project. As what can we learn in this space that can be relevant to Orthodox communities around the country. Very interesting. I like the next next name, by the way. I think that could work. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, so, you, so you said you have experience when it comes to college campuses and college campus outreach. Does that include the political uh, arm of college campus outreach, or strictly the religious arm of? You like, you like Israel stuff. Well, yeah, BDS, Israel, uh, trying yeah. trying to get the messages both across and quell those messages that really don't belong. Yeah. I mean, is that part of it? So I worked a little bit in that when I was in, when I was uh, a student at Penn. I ran one of the Israel groups, but now most of what I do is is, is more around uh, religious life. Uh, we'll do 
We do a lot of Shabbat dinners and holidays. And obviously Israel is a part of it, and we'll, we'll maybe get people to go on birthright because they, so they can see Israel for themselves. Right. Um, but, but we try not to focus too much just on sort of on a political angle. Uh, I, I guess we found there are a lot of groups that are working on on like Israel activism and sort of fighting those messages. And sort of, I guess we realize that Jewish life is, is, is a lot broader than just one issue. I mean, Israel is a huge issue, but it's it's only one issue. There's also like Shabbat and getting kosher food for for students and running Pesach seders and finding the 75 percent of Jews who, who don't know that they're Jewish or aren't really involved in Jewish life. No, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot, <laughs> there are a lot of issues that have to be addressed. There's no question about yeah. it. In Washington Heights, just back to the shul for a second. Does that get any? Does Israel get any attention there? Like in a typical, I'm trying to get the, you know, an old an old, an old guy like me is trying to get a perspective of the modern Orthodox world. Uh, especially through the eyes of somebody who sees it on a weekly basis in a modern Orthodox young synagogue, is it is it still a topic that's at the forefront of Jewish thought or not? Yeah, definitely. Uh, people, I mean, people talk about it in formal conversations at Shabbat meals all the time. Um, every year for Yom Hashanah, they have a whole ceremony and, and davening, and and they always have people. There's always people from the community who are who are making Aliyah, who they give a special shout out to. So it's definitely on the forefront of, of people's minds. And every Shabbat, we always say. At least in Mount Sinai, also in our school, we, we we say it's tefillah for for Israel and for the army and for the government. Um, so it's definitely and it's definitely in times like these, it's on people, it's definitely on people's minds. Oh, no question, these times. Uh, now I've been told, uh, and this is what I meant, this is what I mean rather, when I said earlier about you know other neighborhoods near you. I've been told that this epidemic, and I say that in the nicest way. <laughs> Of, of old shuls uh, becoming revived and really enjoying a, a renaissance, uh, attracting hundreds as opposed to the singles or tens that they used to. This is not just in Washington Heights. Someone pointed out that in Inwood there is some type of a revival that's like this and other areas of Upper Manhattan as well. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, sure. So Inwood is sort of like like a neighboring. I mean, so when people talk about Washington Heights and sort of a lot of the, the studies and the surveys, they include Inwood also in that. Ah, I didn't um, that. The Heights technically goes from 155th until the, the, the tip of Manhattan, which is like 210 or 220. Right. Um, so the upper, like, from like 210 until like, from like 190 or 195th and upwards, that's considered Inwood. Right. Um, it's sort of like a sister neighborhood of, of Washington Heights. Um, there's a lot going on there also. Yeah, so Inwood also used to be a very Jewish neighborhood in the beginning of, of, the, of the 20th century. Um it's now mostly not. Um, there is some revival. There are Jews moving in there. I, I, I actually did some demographic research working with the UJA study um, and uh, New York City Census, and it, it, it seems actually that most of the revival is happening um, further south in like the 180s. But there are also people uh, moving into Inwood. That's also a gentrifying neighborhood, and uh, among the people moving back are Jews. Um, and there's a Chabad rabbi who's been doing really great stuff. So to Inwood, there's there's nothing going on. There's no shuls. There's no there's no Jewish infrastructure. So he's sort of like starting out. Oh yeah, I think that's who we had spoken to. He's in his storefront or something, right? Yeah, with, with, storefront with... and apartment. Right. They've yeah. been doing really great things. Um, really starting from nothing. So we were. So it, and and it's and that's like a really powerful story, where you like literally start from nothing and try and create something. We're we're I guess like starting from a. It's interesting because the heights, I mean, because, oh, the heights is so much shul, so many shuls. Why would you need to start another shul? Yeah. Um, so we're trying to show that even in a community which everyone thinks is great and everyone thinks is saturated, there's actually 15,000 people who are not going to anything and who you actually can reach out to. Which is unbelievable to believe. Uh, so you're familiar, as you said earlier, you know, you're from uh, Union Square area and you know this area downtown pretty well, and I'm sure you know yeah. something about what's happening in Harlem and 
people are moving into that area, the Upper East Side, Upper West Side. Any, yeah. any, anything left in the, on the island of Manhattan? Or basically, <laughs> or basically the seeds have been planted, and now we're just going to watch as every one of these communities and synagogues continues to grow. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting. Um, if my parents just moved to the Lower East Side, and right. there's also there's a lot of re- renewal and growth. I'm sure you know a lot about oh, that. Yeah. Um, and also like an old community, and, and there's, there's, each neighborhood has its own character, and um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next five, ten years. But yeah, even Harlem, I, I heard there's a Chabad guy starting out in like the 150s, um, <laughs> which, I mean, it's, it, it sounds kind of wild, but if you think historically, Harlem used to be a Jewish neighborhood. Yep. So it also sort of goes back to these cycles of communities. And it's, it's actually, there's, actually there's, this, there's this blog I follow, um, like a Facebook group, where they document all the old, it's called Lost Synagogues of New York, New Jersey. And supposedly there's hundreds of buildings around just like the five boroughs, which used to be shuls and are now either abandoned or churches or who knows what. Well, go to Brownsville, East New York, you'll see areas that, you know, yeah. you won't find a Jew for miles, but the buildings are certainly still there. Um, yeah, you, you, yeah. you mentioned 175th and Wadsworth, for those who are somewhat familiar with the geography up there. Uh, could you... Could you tell us that today it's a safe and secure area? What would you? How would you describe? I know what it was like in my day. I would not have called it safe and secure. What do you? How do you refer yeah, to it now? I mean, I think things have changed a lot. Uh, crime rates have definitely are not what they used to be in like, the nineties. Um, I think people call the crack um, epidemic and definitely changed a lot. I I walk around there at night at two in the morning, in the morning during the day, um, feel totally comfortable. They're also um, the neighborhood's changing a little bit. Like they're renovating the. The George Washington bus terminal on 179th, right? Sure. And bringing in coffee shops and stores and uh, department stores, and I think the neighborhood is changing. And they just uh, <laughs> actually um, on the corner of where the shoe is, they just built this new park with trees and benches and a whole, a whole like walkway where people can hang out. Um, so it's, it's actually a really nice neighborhood. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. And I think I'm, things are changing. I'm sorry, I keep referencing the old days, but but in, <laughs> in that in that time it was almost almost impossible to find a large store that was open on Broadway. Frankly, right? <laughs> there was so many empty spaces and so little uh, for people to do or places to shop. It was just a completely different experience. That's for sure. Yeah. By the way, what 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 industry are these people in? The ones who are in their 20s who are in the show. I know you can't say you know one or two. It's obviously so vast and diverse, but. But is there a concentration in the young Jewish community in terms of industries that they're uh, that they're part of and where they're working these days? Yeah, so um, a lot of people are also in um, in graduate school. A lot of mm. a lot of lawyers, uh, law students. Um, that's yeah, that's still a big big profession. Uh, a lot of people working in education also, uh, whether Jewish education or sort of mm. general secular education. Um, and then there's a lot of friends who working in tech and and. Uh, you know, computers and Facebook and Google. Plenty of Jewish people in those companies, huh? Yeah, yeah, there are. Unbelievable. How north does this go, by the way? Because I know, uh, I, I know 190th certainly still had a Jewish population. Uh, is it all the way up to 200 in that area? So the, I mean, the... I mean, I can tell by sort of the boundaries of the area. I'm on the area of committee, so... You, yeah, what is, the nor- what is the northern boundary? The northern boundary is Fort Tryon Park, which is around, it's sort of, it's, it's a lot of curves and hills, but it's right. around 192nd. So it would be uh, that the equivalent of around there. Or 190th, yeah, that sort of. And it's actually interesting that um, uh, when, I sort of, when I sort of mapped out the demographics based on some of the studies and found out where, where basically the Jews lived, um, most of them, there were like a few, um, uh, like a few, I mean, a few, meaning like a few thousand up in Inwood, maybe a few down in like the 160s, 170s. Most of them were in the 180s, 
Um, right. And so thinking about that, it, it, in, in some sense, the, the school location that we got is not the best location. And we didn't choose it. We sort of, I mean, it, it, was, it was really amazing and being able to get a whole space and revive right. a school was really powerful. Right. But in some sense, it was, it, it was 10 blocks too far south. Um, but what's actually happened is that it's actually been really interesting is that the fact that people are going there, um, anyone who goes there has to walk a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So no one's going there because it's the easiest place, because it's the most convenient, because it's to say they roll out of bed. Everyone who's going there um, is going because they want to go there. Um, and so we sort of, it sort of helps create the sense of sort of an intentional community. People who are all going here with a similar intention, that they want to be a part of davening, which is a little bit different, and learning, which is a little bit different, and a really welcoming community. Um, and so... Yeah, in theory, if I could say our ideal location, if we can plop down a whole shul that we get in, the, uh, in our ideal location, it would be maybe like 187th and further west of Fort Washington. Right. But um, there's actually some, there's actually some uh, positive elements to being a little bit further from where most people live. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, has this led to any uh, other developments in the neighborhood? I don't know, kosher restaurants and things like that, or we're not at that stage yet in Washington Heights? I mean, no, there are. There's, um, I mean, I can't say that us and our project, but definitely the sort of the arrival in the neighborhood. There's a new, there's a new um, kosher sushi falafel. Now they also added on chicken and meat. Go for um, Place on 181st Street. Um, and like, I mean, there's there've always been a bunch of restaurants all the way east um, next to YU's campus, right? Which mostly serviced uh, MTA YU students. Um, but now there's some restaurants opening. This, this new restaurant opened up uh, all the way west, which is where most of the young professionals and hipsters and the rest of the Jewish population lives. What was uh, Sukkot like? And I guess specifically a question like that, I'm really asking about Simchat Torah. Right. So Simchat Torah is, is wild. A lot of people a lot of people come into the neighborhood. Um, people come from all over. It's like it, it, um, a real scene. Um, so we did, we ended up not doing, uh, we did some services, but we didn't like make it a whole thing. Uh, one of the things we did is we did like a pot, like a potluck picnic, uh, Simchat Torah day. And, People came in from the neighborhood, and we did some learning over over lunch. So we we try and do it, like we'll try and supplement sort of like the programming that, that's happening in the neighborhood to, to sort of fill the gaps of what's needed. Um, we also did a shul hop where we where we uh, we danced around to, uh, you know, ten different shuls in the neighborhood. Still young enough to do that, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hart, Hart, Hart Levine is with us, director of Young Professionals Initiative, talking about what's now known as the base community. Right? That's how we know it because of the name of the synagogue, right? Yeah, so the, the the name of the synagogue was was Congregation Bethlehem Shagadal of Washington Heights, so that's a bit of a mouthful to say. Um, so we figured Beth, which was Beit Hamidrash, so we called it Base. Um, and so we actually don't hold debate whether we call it the Base Community or or Bait, which is maybe like a more familiar um, Jewish word. But right. we thought actually that Base is actually nice because people who don't know Hebrew, Base Community actually means something. It means like you know this is our base, yeah. this is our like home base. Um, and it also, and we also like the base or by that word meaning home, because what we're really trying to do is create a home for for Jews in the neighborhood and and a home for you know for uh, for God's Shina well, um, in the neighborhood. I like it. I think it works well. Information about the OU Next Gen Department. What do people do? They can go to the website and learn what from the website about the Next Gen Department. Yeah, they can go to ou.org and uh, from there they can get to all different departments. Um, there are probably some links to the base community. Interesting. We actually. We just got a web presence recently. Um, um, we have a Facebook group, which which we do a lot out of, um, called the Base Community. Um, but if you go to OU.org, you can from there a link to you can search for all the different OU projects and OU Next Gen. And the Facebook page would be B E I S, right? Base B E I S Community. That's how people would find it. 
And, uh, and this is something that it sounds like the key is, and again, for those listening outside of New York who are trying to duplicate the same thing or at least inject their own community with something creative and something that will attract people who are from different backgrounds, it sounds like the programming is what it's all about, whether it's Shabbos programming or otherwise, uh, being a little bit of uh, an innovator, being somewhat creative can go a very long way. Yeah. Um, I think it's also about sort of the intention that you'll put into it. Like, we try really hard to make it a, like a really welcoming space. Um, and and it, it, sometimes it's just small things, sort of like the words that you use to welcome people in, uh, even ha- having people welcoming people at the door. Um, and so a, a, a lot of what people like about what we do, and I think what attracts people and gets them to come back, is that it's a really welcoming and sort of people-centered experience. And I think that's something that all schools could do. Um, I mean, the, the sort of, like I know in, in some... Um, non-Orthodox shuls are sort of greeters or people at the door. Yeah. Um, but if you look at usually Orthodox shuls that have someone at the door, it's usually a security guard to keep people out. Right. Um, and I think, like, what if, I mean, I, I, obviously I understand it's important, but what if we can also make it a priority to welcome people in at the door and really make that, because some people are going to come in for the first time. I'm like, um, so last time, Kipper, I was, um, I took, like, a greeting shift at the door, welcome people in, and there was someone who, who walked, uh, actually rode in on, on her bicy- uh, bicycle, and it turns out later this young woman, 30 years old, um, two Jewish parents, she had never been to shul in her life. This was her first time walking into a shul. Um, imagine if I wasn't there greeting her. So yeah, the davening was great and I think she liked it, but in fact there was someone there to meet her and find her on Facebook afterwards and sort of like help connect those people afterwards. I think that's also really powerful and that's, that has nothing to do with Washington Heights or how many people or how old the shul is. That's about sort of the spirit and the intention that people put in. And you have plenty of colleagues and volunteers who are willing to take shifts and uh, participate in the very same way. Yeah, so this project is not me running it. I mean, in some ways, I've sort of taken lead and, you know, working with, with the OU, this is sort of, uh, it's part of my uh, sort of professional portfolio. Um, but from the very beginning, it was always a community project. There was a team, first it was three of us, and then five, and now there's maybe like 20, 30 people in sort of this core group. Um, and we also invite anyone to... I think anyone can be a greeter. You don't have to be one of the most involved 20 people. And and we really try and push that element. So it, it, it is very much a grassroots community. Really amazing to speak to you. You're a real inspiration. Initiatives can become greatness. And it looks like this one is uh, well on its way, to be very honest. Yeah, I, I, I think, thank you. I, 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 I also want to just uh, to offer that if, if people are interested in doing stuff like this or finding ways to bring these ideas or models or innovative practices to the community, I'd love to, you know, be a resource, um, share some we've been doing, talk with them. Um, I guess I'll offer my, yeah, just like just to, to sort of like share some we've been doing with people. Um, yeah, I guess sure. you can find me also through the base community on Facebook, um, Hart Levine also on Facebook. What, or What about uh, an email address? Yeah, so also uh, uh, Levine H, L-E-V-I-N-E-H at OU.org. Easy enough. And people could be in touch with you and uh, converse about what you've done and what you could help them do. Uh, yeah. Hart Levine is available at LevineH at OU.org, LevineH at OU.org. He is the Director of Young Professionals Initiative at the OU, uh, as you heard, in conjunction with OU Next Gen Department, and has done a remarkable job in Washington Heights and is ready to uh, do the same thing in many are- other areas as well as they continue to expand their efforts. And this synagogue specifically we were talking about, uh, the base community is a 99-year-old shul that uh, had no minion in 2013 for Ashanium Kippur, and this year... Uh, enjoys not just a strong minion every Shabbos and on a regular basis, but around the 200 people this past Yom Kippur just a couple of weeks ago. Hart, yeah. Hart Levine, a pleasure meeting you in this forum. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, continued success. Thank you so much, Matt.
A pleasure. There he is, director of the uh, Young Professionals Initiative at the OU. Information, of course, at OU.org. Go to OU.org. More coming up. This is an Alchem Segal Network.
Who knows? 
to the Nachum Siegel Network. This is the uh, OU Jewish Reaction uh, Show, the uh, hour that we spend each week with interesting guests. I want to take this opportunity again to thank Hart Levine, Director of Young Professionals Initiative at the OU. Uh, if you missed any of this conversation, obviously go to the archive section of the Nachum Siegel Network or the NSN app, and in the uh, archive section under the OU Jewish Reaction Show, you will uh, find this conversation that we uh, conducted earlier in this hour and, of course, uh, the other um, a guest that we've had uh, on during this season. And for those of you who missed it, Hart Levine, who joined me, uh, has helped revive a 99-year-old congregation now known as the Base Community in Washington Heights, the oldest shul in Washington Heights at 175th Street in Wadsworth. Uh, before last year, back in the uh, high holiday season of 2013, they were not getting a minion. Literally, they were not getting a minion. And last year, he and a uh, wonderful group of colleagues came in through outreach and community organizing and um, a whole variety of different events and community building uh, with young adults in conjunction with the OU uh, Next Gen Department. They were able to build a crowd that now, just a couple of weeks back during the Rosh Hashanah Kippur season, had over uh, 200 people there in the shul. A mix of religious, those who are becoming religious, those who used to be religious, and those who are completely not religious, all together uh, participating in services and learning that appeals to all of them. So um, this is what's happening, this uh, revitalization, this renaissance at 175th Street in Wadsworth in the Washington Heights section of uh, New York City. And uh, through the OU Next Gen Department, they are able to uh, help people put together programming for other cities and other areas that might uh, also lend itself to uh, watching a community grow and uh, watching a community be revived. Uh, information, you could write to his email address. Hart Levine uh, is available at levineh at ou.org. That's levineh at ou.org. And the OU website has plenty of information for the OU Next Gen Department as they try to bridge the gap between the uh, NCSY and college years, and I guess what I would refer to as the uh, young family years. 
They're trying to bridge that gap, and Washington Heights has been one of the uh, bases of um, great success because there are a tremendous number of people in that category uh, that are there in that community. So uh, they're doing good work up there, and you can find out more no matter where you are around the country and around the world by uh, emailing levineh at ou.org and going to the ou.org website for the next-gen department. This is the Nahum Siegel Network. Reminder, our social media is always active, and we hope that you uh, take an active role in it. Our um, a Facebook update page is uh, entitled Nahum Siegel Network. Like the page today so you can be up to date on everything that we post. Uh, the um, uh, Twitter feed is at Nahum Siegel Net. And on Instagram, also Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, and this way, when we uh, post anything, you'll be up to date on everything that's happening. Uh, best ways to listen to us, uh, the NahumSiegel.com website, and, of course, the NSN app. The NSN app gives you an opportunity not just to listen in from anywhere around the world live, uh, but also to uh, check out all the different archives that we have to offer from all of our different programming. And in addition to that, the app gives you a chance to actually comment on the show. You can comment as the show is going on, and those are seen uh, by the hosts, and those appear on the home screen of the app. In fact, that's where you put the comment on the home screen of your app, and then they end up uh, on the home screen of everyone's app uh, simply by um, swiping up the page of comments. It's as simple as that. To so get involved, NSN app is a great resource. There's so much great programming. Make sure to do install it on your iPhone or Android today so that you can enjoy it as well. You have been listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And we thank you for doing so. Make sure to check us out each and every week during this hour. And thanks for listening to NSN, the Nahum Siegel Network.